Well, good morning. That was actually much better than uh, West Philly, so <laughs> y'all are responsive. I appreciate that. Uh, well, thank you, Pastor Luke. Uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. It's always a little bit intimidating to uh, preach to a new crowd. You don't necessarily know the stories and lives of other people that are with you, so I'll just invite you to pray with me this morning as we ask God to be present and fill up our time. God, we come humbly asking that you would be present. Uh, I do not know the stories and lives of everyone in this room, but you do. You know everything that's happened up to this very moment. You know all the disappointments, all the joys, all the sorrows, frustrations, ambitions, plans, all the needs. You know all these things, God. And so we pray that you would move in each of the hearts that's here this morning to know that you are God and help them to be still before you. It's in your son's name and by your powerful spirit that you've given us, we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing uh, in the series on the Sermon on the Mount, which has asked us to really think about what does it mean to live as citizens of the kingdom of God? Not how do we get in, but once you're in, what does life look like? And there have been many challenging passages. There have been many challenging calls and charges that these things have brought up, and today uh, will be no exception. It's a difficult passage. Anytime you see Jesus use the word hypocrite, you want to buckle in and just get ready for a little bit of a bumpy ride. This is not necessarily going to be smooth sailing, uh, but there is gospel hope in this message, and we'll get there this morning, but we're going to have to get through some things uh, to get there. Now, this passage is maybe one of the most misunderstood or probably misquoted passages in all of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's typically thought of or maybe, you know, just kind of used in our culture as saying, don't judge me. You have no right to judge. You don't get to say what my life should be like. But that's actually not what this passage is talking about. This passage is in no way suggesting that we should stop at some point saying, this is right and this is wrong. And we know that just concretely because in chapter 6, Jesus just got done with this long section of telling us very concretely, this is right and this is wrong. And not only is this right, but the people that do what's wrong are hypocrites. So we can't really think that this passage tells us that we should stop making particular assessments of other people. It must mean something else. So what is it about? Well, this passage is actually about spiritual blindness. And the particular spiritual blindness that this passage addresses is criticism, having an unfair, graceless, critical attitude of others. And this is something that's all around us today. I mean, you can just barely open your eyes in the morning before it's on your phone, before it's in your email, in the news, on the radio, on TV, all around you, criticism, being critical, backbiting, just a critical tone in our world today. It's all around us, but it's not just around us, it's also in us. If you're like me, it's probably very easy to look back on the past week, maybe even the past day, maybe even getting here this morning, and to see criticism in your heart. And what this passage says about criticism, when we really understand what it's saying, is that criticism is ridiculous. There's no other way I wish there was. There is no other way to understand what this passage has to say about criticism when we really hear what it's saying than to recognize that it is ridiculous. So I want to look this morning about how this passage helps us understand criticism, 
what it shows us about why criticism is ridiculous, and then what it says we should do instead. So understanding criticism, why it's ridiculous, and what we should do instead. Well, first, in, in understanding criticism, how do we know that this passage is actually talking about criticism? How do we know it's not talking about something else? Well, our first kind of clue comes from some words in the text, a particular word, and the context that comes up in. So the word is judge. And in the original language, that word can mean one of two things. There is a strict kind of legal courtroom sense of the word to judge, where you would expect judges, attorneys, laws, that sort of thing. And then there is the more general sense of forming opinions or judgments about people or things. So we have the specific sense and we have the general sense. Which is it? Well, the passage, again, the context sort of points out to us what must be the case here because what we don't see is a courtroom. We do not see a judge. We don't see attorneys. We don't see laws. There's nothing that would point us to a strict legal sense. So Jesus here is not proclaiming anarchy and the end of courts and society as we know it. If you're an anarchist this morning, I'm sorry. This passage is not for you. What Jesus is saying is talking about a very general sense that making judgments or forming opinions about people or things. And that's actually what we see the person in this little micro parable of verses three through five doing. That's exactly what we see him doing, is forming an opinion or a judgment about someone else. But what that example shows us is it's actually not a good use of personal judgment. There, there can be such a thing as good value judgments. Again, we just talked about that from the context of chapter six, but verse five particularly points this out for us when Jesus says, when you've removed the log, then you will see clearly to take out the speck. There is a time and a circumstance for us to form judgments and opinions, but criticism is not that time. The word for judging, again, is not negative in itself. I want to make that clear this morning. There are many requirements in Scripture for making good and right judgments, for using good judgment. The whole book of Proverbs is dedicated to having good judgment. So this is not saying don't have good judgment, because what we see in verses 3 and 4 is not good judgment. It's blindness. It's criticism. But what is criticism more concretely. What are we talking about when we're using this word? Well, I want to differentiate it and kind of explain some of the things that it does. First, criticism is not just an observation or a statement of fact, okay? Criticism, and this is the definition I want us to focus in on, is an accusation from a false sense of superiority. Criticism is an accusation from a false sense of of superiority. We'll, we'll talk about why it's false in a little bit, but that's, that's the nature of it. It's accusatory, and it's accusatory from a place of false standing. So what does that false accusation do? In criticism, we see a few things coming out. There, there are four things. I'm sure there are a lot of things, but there are four kind of things I want to point out that criticism does to help us get our arms around what this is that we're talking about. First, Criticism thinks the best of you and the worst of someone else. I am always on time. They are always late and a terrible person. I am always conscientious. I pick up after myself. They leave their dishes in the sink and are a terrible person. This is what criticism does. It thinks the best of you and the worst of someone else. 
It also thinks less actually about that other person that you're criticizing than it does about you. Because really, this is not about them. You may be offering this critique, this quote, you know, observation in the moment that's actually a criticism in the name of helping them. I'm just trying to help you have better hygiene. I'm just trying to help you be a better roommate. But that's not what's happening. That's not the core of what's going on. What's really going on is that each and every one of us is just irritated with that person and just wants the irritation to stop. This is not about them. This is about you. Criticism also doesn't see a person. It sees a problem. In the moment of criticism, we reduce the complexity of an entire individual, of someone made in the image of God, down to their very faults. And in doing this, we kind of change someone's name. They're no longer just John. They are John who doesn't return my calls. That becomes their official name that we give them. That's how they are in our phone when their number pops up finally when they call us back. It's John who doesn't return my phone call calling. Let me take this. That's what we do. We change someone's name. This is how we see you. You are the problem and nothing more. And until you stop being that problem, that's what you are. And lastly, criticism turns shortcomings into character issues. It takes our limitations, the things that are weaknesses for us, the things that we don't do well, and evaluates them as respective to our character. We say the fact that you are always late means that you are a bad person. The fact that you are always just forgetting to pick things up, always forgetting to do what I ask, means you are a bad person. It's not just an observation of fact. This is an accusation. It's an accusation. This is what criticism does. It thinks the best of you and the worst of others. It thinks more about yourself than the other person you're criticizing. It sees a problem and not a person. And it turns someone's shortcomings into character issues. And the passage shows us that this is ridiculous. The problem is we don't see it. And that's why Jesus has to use a very sharp example in this little micro parable in verses 3 to 5 to really open our eyes to what's going on so that we can see it because we won't without it. So let's get into the scene itself as we, as we really try to understand more of what's going on here. The scene is critical. This little micro parable is critical to understanding what's going on here. And the word log, I, th I think, is actually better translated as beam because the word being used here is something that would refer to either a roofing beam that would hold up your roof or a beam that would bar a door. This is not like a little piece of firewood. This is massive. Okay, think very large. And opposite of this giant beam, we have a speck. And the scene that's kind of being constructed here is like a carpenter's workshop. You would not notice a speck of sawdust in a carpenter's workshop. It is insignificant. You could not miss a beam. You wouldn't think about a speck. These are the two things we have juxtaposed here. And really, we need to see this little scene as a cartoon. This is meant to be funny and ridiculous. What's happening here is a suspension of the laws of physics, the laws of medicine. Someone has a roofing beam wedged in their head, and they are not dead. Not only are they not dead, they are not on their back. They are walking around and moving. The fact that they are not in the ICU, in critical condition, being immediately operated on, should be funny to us. This is a situation that would not happen. This is ridiculous. 
and more so, just the physics of how he's walking around should be ridiculous to us. If this is a 10, 15-foot roofing beam, how is he walking around? You can't hold that up. Even some of the world's strongest men are not getting around town holding up a beam like this. Does he have like a little cart so that he can walk with it in front of him? Or is he just dragging it on the ground and always walking backwards? And if he's doing that, how is he seeing things out of the other eye? What's happening? He doesn't have any depth perception. If he went to shake your hand, he would miss. He has one good eye. He should be in intense trauma. And instead, he's noticing like, hey, there's a little a speck. Could you? It's embarrassing. Get that off. This is ridiculous. And with this example, Jesus is saying, your criticism is just as ridiculous. It's a cartoon. It's a joke. We should not take it seriously. And we need to hear the text warning this morning in the same way, because criticism is this ridiculous. It is this problematic. It should have us in the spiritual ICU, and we need to pay attention. So why then is it so ridiculous? Aside from obviously this cartoony example, well, two things that I want to talk about that. First, because we think we're making an honest comparison and criticism, but we're actually not. We think we are being fair in criticism, but we're actually not. Verse 2 brings this up for us in raising the question of the way we measure others. It says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So when we criticize, we think we're using this equal measure. We think we're just being fair but we're actually using an unequal measure. And we're using an unequal measure by comparing our strength to someone else's weakness in one category. That's actually not fair. Comparing our strength to someone else's weakness in one category is an unequal measure. And Jesus is warning us it will be measured to you in the same way if you use that. Some examples of measuring our weakness to someone else's strength. We compare how fast we get back to an email, how fast we return a text, how fast we like a post, to how fast someone else does, and we judge them for the way that they do that. We compare how sexually holy we have been with someone else. We think of how good we have been in some particular spiritual way compared to someone else, how much theology we know compared to someone else, how woke we are to biblical and societal issues to someone else. But that's not an equal comparison. That's a self-deceived comparison. It's actually a blind comparison. Because what we're doing in that moment is a couple of things, and the first of which is we are expecting someone to be at their absolute best even in the things that are the absolutely most difficult for them to do. And while we're doing that, we're giving ourselves a pass. Because if you're like me, what you do when someone gives you a hard time for something that you're not very good at is say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is hard for me. This is not my strength. Give me a break. Get off my back. We give ourselves a pass for the things that are hard for us, and we give others no pass because we expect them to have it together now. And this, this giving ourselves a pass while we give others condemnation is what Jesus rightly calls being a hypocrite. We are two-faced in this moment because an equal measure is comparing someone's strength in one category to our strength in another category because we are all uniquely made. We are all individually 
made. And though we are all equal before the foot of the cross, God has made a beautiful tapestry of diversity in each and every one of us that he weaves together, and he is not interested in flattening that diversity out to look exactly like you, to look exactly like me. Because what we do in criticism is make the measure of someone else's worth us. How we live, how we act, how we think. but you and I are not the measure of someone else's worth before God. And praise God for that. You and I are not the measure of someone else's worth before God. See, God is going to call us to account for what we did with the gifts, the strengths that he gave us, not the strengths that he gave someone else. He is not going to ask you at the end of all things, how were you relative to Susan? No. We are going to be called to account for what we did with what he has given us. And if we are using a measure of judgment that God himself will not use, how far off is our judgment? How far are we from the truth? See, the question we should focus on is not how good am I compared to someone else? It's what am I doing with what God has given me? And that's a scary question. That's a scary question because though we may be blind to some extent to how we're using this unequal measure and comparing our strength to someone else's weakness, there's an extent to which we're not. Because if we really think about it, there is an extent to which we know it's more comfortable to ask how am I doing relative to someone else versus what am I doing with all that God has called me to? That's a scary question because that kind of question only leads us to say with the tax collector of Luke 18, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And our great fear is that in that moment, God will say no. Because so often what I do, what you may do, is I make God more like me than like him. And I say no to grace. I say no to mercy. See, this, this is why criticism is ridiculous because it makes us forget the gospel. Because in the gospel, our moment of victory, our moment of salvation is not when we have it all together. It's not the perfect Christian version of you 20 years from now. It's when we recognize our need. That's the moment of victory. That's the moment of salvation. Because Jesus himself said, he did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. And he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the invitation of the gospel. Not get yourself together, but you can't do it. And Christ did. So come to him. And it's not only ridiculous because we use this unequal measure, but it's also ridiculous because of what we do to others in criticism. We've already been hinting at some of these things, but we need to make it just a little more explicit for ourselves to see what we're really doing. It's ridiculous to criticize our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is what verse 3, I think, is getting at here. Not just family relationships, but those inside the kingdom of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's ridiculous to criticize them because doing so forgets that Christ came and now there is no more condemnation for them. Christ came for all the sins of all Christians, all of them, 
every single sin of everyone in your life, all the sins of myself, of your pastors, your elders, your deacons, the people sitting side by side with you this morning, all the sins up to this very moment of time have been paid for. And in criticism, we say, not paid for. See, Jesus came to do this for us, and he did this by taking an unjust measure. He was measured unjustly. He was criticized unfairly. He was judged unjustly. The beam was not in his eye. It was on his back. There was no blindness in him, no sin. And yet he took sin upon himself to end once and for all all of the accusations of all who would believe in him. And th this is why criticism is ridiculous for us with respect to others. Because when we are condemning our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are condemning the exact people that Christ came to say not guilty over. It's ridiculous because we are trying to break the cross. We are trying to break the cross in reversing and undoing all of Christ's work to end condemnation in that moment of criticism, it seems just like nothing. It seems like a speck, but it's really a beam. And the danger of trying to undo the cross is not only are we keeping condemnation on the people that bother us, but we are actually putting condemnation back on ourselves. Because without the cross, there is no release from the just condemnation that is due each and every one of us for walking away from God. This is why criticism is ridiculous, because it is not only destructive to others, but self-destructive at the same time. This is something that we have to get out of. Because the scary thing is, we're still imitating someone in criticism, but it's not God. We're actually imitating Satan. Satan's name in the scriptures is the accuser. He is called the accuser of the brethren. This is what he does. And so when we criticize, when we unjustly judge, we are not imitating God, but we are still imitating someone else. This just adds a further layer of ridiculous to our criticizing that in the moment of saying, here, I'm trying to help you out so that you can get your life together, what we're actually doing is imitating the accuser of the brothers and sisters in Christ. That, again, is a hypocritical moment where we say one thing, but in reality, whether we are conscious of it in that moment or not, we're doing another. This is the danger that we're facing. It's also, however... Ridiculous for us to criticize non-Christians, not just Christians. And this is because we are the people, we are the messengers that God has commissioned to bring the good news of not guilty in Christ to the world. And instead, when we condemn, we are condemning the exact people that we've been told to bring this good news to. Instead of liberating, we're putting on different shackles. This should be ridiculous in our eyes. It's like a ship going down in the ocean and you're on the Coast Guard and you've been sent out to save them and you're just tossing out life preservers going, didn't you know I had lunch plans? Can't you start swimming better so I wouldn't have to bring you all into shore? This is the image. We have been sent as those who would extend salvation and instead we're just criticizing. That's not who we are. That's not who we've been called to be. So whether we do it to Christians or non-Christians, this is not what we should be doing. So what do we do instead? 
We take out the beam and we look with love. This is a direct implication and command of the passage. Take the beam out of your eye. You can't escape that here. This is not just notice it, acknowledge it, put a little kind of red flag on it like you do out of the back of a truck and walk away. No, this is, it has to come out. So what's the beam in your eye? I don't know. And in some sense, I want you to leave this morning not knowing either and wondering, what is the beam in my eye? Because it has some, some characteristics that are going to make it difficult to find. And I want to talk about those for a second to try and help you figure out what this is for you. Because the first characteristic is that right now, this beam is in your eye, your spiritual being, and you don't know it. That was true of the guy in the parable. He did not know it. He thought everything was fine. Everything was clearly not fine. And this also means that much of your daily life, much of your day-to-day functioning has been distorted because you are walking around with a roofing beam in your eye. So what this means is when we identify this, when we figure out what's at the core of what's going on here, we can't just have a little bit of a change of thought. We can't just say, now I get it and move on because all of our functioning, our flourishing is being inhibited in some way, even if a small way, by this. That means the way we live, the way we interact with others is going to have to change. The way we interact with ourselves is going to have to change. Maybe no one is a worse critic of you than you. And part of the beam coming out is going to be showing yourself compassion and showing others compassion. We're going to have to change the way we interact with one another because this has impaired our ability to actually walk in love as we were called to walk in love. Another characteristic is that we're not going to recognize it until someone else points it out for you. And maybe that's the Holy Spirit through Scripture, and undoubtedly the Spirit does this for us. And without the Spirit, we have no hope of finding these things. But we are so self-deceived that this is going to happen in community. Because we might acknowledge a speck or a chunk that we found but we're still blind and we're going to need someone else who knows us to really point it out to us. And I'm not asking you to be 100% transparent about all your flaws and shortcomings with everyone in the room this morning. I don't think that's necessary or wise. What is necessary is that a couple people, two, three people that you trust who have earned the right to hear your story and who will speak love and truth back to you, that those people know what's going on with you and have the opportunity to speak back into your life. Do you have those people in your life this morning? If they're there, are you using them? Or is it just always hanging out? Or always having a good time? And there is nothing wrong from the biblical perspective with us enjoying being together. We should have good fun together. But there is also a need in this time before Christ returns for us to sharpen one another. So in your small groups, in your friend groups, are you getting to these times? Are you setting up a time, if you need to, to get real, to be honest, to talk about the junk that's in here? Because if you're not, it's not just going to come out. It will not come out on its own. We have to address it. And this is going to be something particularly deep for you. This is the last characteristic. This is not a speck. This is a beam. 
It's going to be something closer to what we talked about in Matthew chapter 6. It's going to be something like impression management. It's going to be something like worry, anxiety, something like having all of our attention bound up with earthly treasure. But it's not going to be those things that will be under them. It will be what drives us to keep our impression management at 100% level, to keep our worry about our finances at 100% level, to keep our worry about relationships, about health, about whatever it may be. The thing that drives us up there, that is going to be our beam. So how do we find it? If these are the characteristics of it, that, that it's in there and we don't know it, that it's distorting our functionality, that we can't recognize it without community and that it, it's going to be something significant for us. Here are some questions to help you think about it. What's behind my need to be liked and to have people think well of me? What's behind my need to be liked and to have people think well of me? Even if you feel like you're a person who says, I don't need other people's affirmation, what is it to need your own affirmation? What is it to be liked by yourself? What is that for you? What drives that? Second, what's behind my need to have the fulfillment I desire from things I can buy or experience? What's behind my need to have the fulfillment I desire from things I can buy or experience? And then here's your hinge question. What happens if I don't get those things? What happens if I don't like myself? What happens if other people don't like me? What happens if I don't get this thing that I feel like I really need to be okay? What happens to me? Who am I? And then related to that, which of these things, these core desire things, do I need to most ultimately find in God? Because what this, what this desire is going to point to is that we have been trying to find something God meant for us to find only in him somewhere else. And that means this beam is actually a worship issue for us. And I don't mean like a corporate Sunday morning worship issue. I mean a day-to-day -day rhythm of life, what are you putting your hope in kind of worship. It's that worship issue. It's the thing that our hearts desire most, that we put our hope for flourishing and life and blessing in. That. It's that thing that's at issue here. And if it's a worship issue, as one counselor has, has wisely said, it means that if we have worshipped our way into this, we're going to have to worship our way out. If we have worshipped our way into this, into this beam, into this desperately seeking the thing that God meant us to have in him somewhere else, if we've worshipped our way into that, we're going to have to worship our way out. Worship is how we get the beam out. We worship the God who was and who is and who will be with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the direction of our worship. And when we get our worship right, then we'll get our vision right. Because when we're no longer captive to this false God, when we no longer are prisoners to finding our hope for eternal things in temporary things, we will no longer be unstable and we will have a steady gaze to see what's in front of us. We will be able at that point to move towards others in love. We won't be needing something from them. We will not be saying this in an accusatory way. We will be saying, I love you. This needs to change. That's the difference between criticism and a just judgment is love. 
and care and knowing that God has you, knowing that he has you completely and you need nothing more. You lack no good thing in him. And when this beam comes out, we might see that the speck was actually never there. Because it has to at least be possible that for a man who has a roofing beam wedged in his head, he might not have actually seen that tiny speck in someone's eye 15 or 20 feet away. It might not have been there. And so what we might realize when this worship issue starts to come out of our hearts more and more, that what we thought was the speck in our brother or sister's eye is not actually there. That's not actually where they need our help. That's just a limitation in the way that they were creaturely made. And where they do need our help is somewhere over here. Where they do need our love is somewhere over here. And so it's not that we don't help. It's not that we don't engage. It's that we have a clear vision to see where we need to engage. We stop wasting our energy. We stop fighting and backbiting against each other. And we start moving forward in love and with the gospel. Because before we do that, we are going to be trying to push other people to worship the thing that we worship so that we have a critical mass and things get moving towards the direction that we want them to go. Or we're going to be stepping on their shoulders and pushing them down so we can get to the thing that we feel like we have to have. This is why the log has to come out. This is why the beam has to come out, because it is hurting others and it is killing you. It has to come out. This is not something I don't want you to leave this morning feeling like we can hear this and hear it once and that was enough. I'm having to marinate on this. I'm having to think about this and wrestle with this and struggle with this. We have to think about this. We have to because it is only harming others. It is going to change our relationships and we need them to be changed by the gospel. So what do we do then when this beam comes out? And it's going to be a long process. There may be several beams. We may be more critically injured than we know we are. This may be a lifelong process for us, but as we recognize it, as we address it, there's going to be, if we think about it medically, a physical recovery from that. If you had major trauma like this, it's not going to be on Tuesday after hearing this message, you are good. No, there's going to be a long process. We have to give ourselves grace. I want you to be patient with yourself. I have to be patient with myself. I am not going to get this right tomorrow. But we get to walk forward in grace around these things. But once, once we start to move this out, when it comes out, we look with love. And we do that by using the measure of Christ and wisdom. So looking with love through the measure of Christ draws us to remember that in Christ's measure of judgment, we get what we don't deserve. So others can also get what they don't deserve. We can extend the exact same measure. The measure you use will be measured to you. Will you use the measure of grace? I want to encourage you. Use the measure of grace. Extend to someone else what has been extended to you in the gospel. Step back from accusation. Step back from being an accuser. Be for each other. Commit Renewal Mainline to really being for each other. Let your commonalities in Christ be more important than your differences. And it's not that we whitewash all our differences, they're important. But let your commonalities be more important. Be for each other. Life is short. The differences will not matter in the end. Be for each other. Let your measurement be grace. When you are prepared to accuse this week, just ask yourself, how can I respond with the grace Jesus has shown me? 
when someone cuts you off on your way home today, when someone does something that really annoys you, when someone sins against you, how can I respond with the grace that has been shown to me? Because I would want Jesus to respond to me with grace in my sin, with grace in my faults. Do to others what you would have them do unto you. And know, most ultimately, that I'm not asking you to do this from your own power, from your own ability. I want to tell you right now that is not possible. It's not possible for me. It's not possible for you. If you live to be 120, it will not be possible on your own power. The reason that Jesus can ask us to do these things is because he made it possible for you. The reason that we can have any hope of ending criticism is because at the cross, Jesus Christ ended all criticism for you, each and every sin up to this moment in your life and going on until he returns or calls you home has been ended. Over you, the verdict that should have been guilty now says, beloved. That's who you are in Christ. Criticism has ended for you. And not only the criticism that was due you for the actual penalties that were right for your sin, but for the criticism that comes from you. Christ not only ends your accusation, he makes you new. The call of this passage is not to become something you are not, but to be who you are. You are those for whom criticism has ended. You are those who no longer criticize in Christ. The heavenly reality that will be true of you one day is true of you even in a seed form now. The call of the text is to become who you are. We are those in Christ for whom there is now no condemnation. Be who you are. But the challenge of this text this morning is that you have to know that if you are not in Christ, there is no one to speak that verdict of beloved over you. There is no one to take away the just accusations. There is no one to defend you against the right accusation that you have abandoned God and walked away from him. This is the challenge of the text this morning. If you are not a Christian, then the beam that may need to come out of your eye is this criticism you've had of God over the years. And that's not to whitewash any of the pain that you felt, any of the suffering that you've gone through, because scripture alone, of all religion, of all philosophies, addresses suffering in a real and appropriate way. But maybe, just maybe, I want to invite you to consider that maybe your criticism has been misdirected that maybe it should be turned against the real accuser. Not God, but the one who is the accuser of the brethren, Satan. That maybe we've been criticizing in the wrong place. Maybe we've been wary of the wrong thing. And this goes back to the very Garden of Eden, where the deceiver himself convinced us that God was not our friend, he was our enemy, when the one who was speaking to us in that moment was our enemy. So maybe just consider... Have you been deceived? Because each and every one of us who are a Christian and here this morning are willing to confess before Christ we were deceived. So you're not alone. You're only finally in good company. So I would invite you, stay in good company. Find Christ. Take the beam out and look in love. Use that measure of grace and also use wisdom. And here's where we're going to spend just a minute on verse 6, where it's a tricky passage. And it's not the bulk of the passage, but I think it makes a contrasting point to all that verse 1 through 5 have talked about. 
at verses 1 through 5 are urging us not to make this false accusation, this accusation from a false sense of superiority. Verse 6 is calling us not to give up on judgment entirely and to make good judgments. Because what's being pictured here is an equally opposite set of ridiculous situations. What's holy, at least in verse 6, is most likely referring to the sacrificial meat of the temple, which was only to be eaten by the priests and their families. And it would be ridiculous to give that which was so holy, which was dedicated to God, which was only fit for a very small group of people, to dogs, which were in the ancient world, garbage collectors. And it's also crazy to give pigs pearls as food something that would be so valuable as it was in the ancient world as pearls, which is not a food, to give as food in the first place, but then to give it to pigs as food would be ridiculous. The point there, I believe Christ is making, is to use good judgment. After we spent all this time saying, do not criticize unjustly, the reminder is that we must still make good judgments. We should not hold back from speaking against the brokenness, abuse, and sin in our world. The way we do that, the context, the standpoint from which we do that, however, is love, is humility, is grace. So if you have been sinned against this morning, if you have had injustice done to you, if you have experienced abuse, I am not saying to you, the text is not saying to you, never bring that up and let it go. No. The call is to exercise good judgment and wisdom, and to do so out of love. Good judgment listens where God has spoken and speaks God's truth with faith, hope, and love. This is our call this morning to end criticism. We may be more willing to be part of campaigns that would end hunger and poor education and shortages of water, poverty, than we actually are to commit to ending criticism. But I want to challenge you this morning, Renewal Mainline, Commit to ending criticism in our church. You have been empowered. You are those for whom criticism has ended. Be who you are. Let's pray. We're going to take some time now and just reflect on these things in prayer, and then I'll close us in prayer at the end. But I just want to encourage you now. Take some time to ask God help you find the beam in your eye that deep thing that you're worshiping instead of him. Ask him to help you see it. Ask him to help others be gentle with you about it. Ask him to give you perseverance in it that you might not give up the race and just concede that it's there and will always be there. Refuse to believe that that is true and believe instead in the God who can raise the dead. Let's ask God now to help us find this beam in our hearts and our eyes.
Second, I want to encourage you to ask God to help you put your accusations down and to use the measure of grace, to use wisdom, to use love. Ask him to help you put love in your heart that it might overflow out of your mouth and not accusation instead, to replace what is hard and bitter there with what is gentle and loving. Let's ask God to help us be different because he has made us different. Father, you know these things are difficult for us. We know that you ask, not putting a burden on our backs, but because we could not do it ourselves, and yet you were willing and able, and you came. This is the week we remember that you came of all the weeks that we could hear about our criticism, God. How fitting that we would hear on a week, the very week that you came to end it. So would you be in our hearts this week, from day to day, from hour to hour, to remind us that for us who are in you, there is no more condemnation, that the criticism we would levy against ourselves can be put down, that the criticism that we would put against others can be set down. God, help us not to overlook the things that we should address, to use good judgment, but help us to use a measure of grace. Show us the beam in our eye, God, and help us be gracious towards those who also have beams in theirs in your son's name, and by the spirit who is able to make us those who are loving, we pray. Amen. We're going to close now in a time of song, so I would invite you to stand as we sing in response to the God who has ended your criticism.